0: The History Channel, original podcast. History This Week, February 26th, 1917. I'm Sally Helm. Ah! The cornetist is so loud that he has to stand back 20 feet. If he gets too close to the tin recording horn, the final song will be all cornet. It's still early days for the whole business of recorded music. And so in this 12th floor studio in midtown Manhattan, the members of the original Dixieland Jazz Band are trying to get in formation. They're an all-white band coming out of New Orleans. There are five of them. The drummer's in the back, then comes the cornet, then trombone, clarinet, and finally the piano, up front where it can be heard. That huge tin recording horn funnels the sound down to a needle, and the needle scratches lines onto a wax disc. They keep the room hot, so the wax will be soft enough that the needle can leave an impression. After a lot of false starts, the engineers are finally satisfied with the recording quality, and the members of the original Dixieland jazz band pack up to go. By the way, that's jazz with two S's instead of Z's. The genre is so young that there's not yet a consistent way to spell it. But jazz has actually been played for about 20 years now, mostly by Black musicians in New Orleans. Still, most of the country has never heard of jazz before, and they've certainly never heard it played. But that is about to change. Today, the original Dixieland Jazz Band records the first jazz record ever published. Why was jazz, an art form pioneered by Black musicians, introduced to the world by an all-white band? And who were the true pioneers that didn't make the first jazz record?
1: For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit JDPower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or SleepNumber.com.
0: We started our research for this story with a simple question. What is jazz?
1: Jazz is basically, it's kind of a mutt.
0: A mutt. That's Kevin Whitehead, jazz historian and critic for the NPR show Fresh Air.
1: It's kind of evolved out of a bunch of different things, different ways. So when people talk about pure jazz, I chuckle a little bit because the whole idea of purity doesn't really apply.
0: Damon Phillips would agree. He's a professor of social enterprise at Columbia Business School. He wrote a book about the early jazz recording industry, and he says, sure, we've given jazz a name.
2: But if you ask a set of people what jazz is, even musicians, you're not going to get a consistent answer. The ambiguity is part of the definition.
0: Turns out, not so easy to start with a definition of jazz. Instead, we're gonna start with a place, New Orleans.
2: In New Orleans, there's a very unique cultural combination of different folks from different traditions who live close enough to one another so that their respective influences affected each other.
0: At the turn of the 20th century, New Orleans is home to many different cultures. Specifically, African-American musicians and French Creole musicians have the chance to hear each other's music and to play together. The African-American musicians are bringing a mix of influences.
2: You have uh, rhythm, syncopation, and this need for self-expression.
0: One musical tradition that had originally come out of slave plantations was called ragging, where enslaved people would take existing melodies and change the rhythms to be more in line with rhythmic traditions from Africa. As Kevin Whitehead explains it,
1: Shifting accents away from the main beat into the sort of cracks between the beats, so you get this kind of uh, rhythmic energy that comes into the music.
0: In the late 1800s, ragging morphs into a new musical genre called ragtime, People love ragtime. It's huge. It's being driven and pioneered by Black composers. And then in New Orleans, you also had French Creole musicians bringing in sounds from the Caribbean and classical harmonic influences from Europe. Damon Phillips said it was this potent combination.
2: The sensitivity and the understanding of the role of rhythm from one group and the sensitivity and the understanding of harmony from another. And there's just not another place where you find that combination of different traditions.
0: So some people are playing ragtime, and some people are playing classical music from Europe, and some are playing the blues. Those musicians are hearing each other, playing together. And eventually, someone, somewhere, starts playing jazz. There actually is a person who a lot of scholars point to, an African-American musician named Buddy Bolden.
1: Buddy Bolden was certainly the first person who was perceived as a jazz musician. It's probably, probably called him the first jazz musician. is not so much of a stretch.
0: Bolden is born in New Orleans in 1877 to a working-class family, and he's a really good musician. He gets his start performing in New Orleans's famous marching bands. He hangs out with a bunch of other musicians at a place called Galloway's Barbershop. He learns from them, hones his technique.
2: The cornet was his chief instrument.
0: What is the cornet?
2: Well, it's a smaller version, a stout version of a trumpet.
0: Okay, got it. Little short squat trumpet.
2: Yeah, it doesn't quite have the range of a trumpet, but... If you know what you're doing, you can really make it work.
0: Buddy Bolden made it work. By 1900, he was famous in New Orleans.
1: Bolden was known for his powerful sound. He was loud, his bluesiness, but he could also play quite sweetly. So he had the combination of the sweet and hot, which is a big part of jazz.
0: Soon enough, people are calling Buddy Bolden King Bolden. It's said that he wore very sharp suits, that he often had a group of girls around him offering to carry his horn, when people heard Bolden's music, they loved to dance to it. Though he could also capture something darker.
2: It's an ability to capture excitement of a party, but at the same time being subjugated. There's a way where the trumpet can capture that human emotion.
0: Unfortunately, the recording we just played is not Buddy Bolden. It's King Oliver and his orchestra, which also featured a young Louis Armstrong in 1923. That may have been what Bolden sounded like, but we don't really know, because he was never formally recorded. Formally. There is a legend of a lost Buddy Bolden recording.
1: His valve trombone player, Willie Cornish, said in the 1930s that he recalled making a wax cylinder recording with Bolden sometime before he went into the army, which was in 1898.
0: If the recording exists somewhere, in some attic or basement, it's very unlikely to be found. And according to oral history, it's just a field recording someone made.
2: If it had been a major company uh, recording Bolden, it would have had just the infrastructure to store it, to keep it, to copy it, to distribute it. There would have been multiple copies of it for others to hear.
0: Bolden's peak came before the recording industry took off. And around his late 20s and early 30s, King Bolden started having headaches acting erratic and paranoid. People around him worried that he was losing his grip on reality.
2: We don't know how accurate things can be diagnosed then, but it's always hard to know, because we're not there, how much his being a Black person at that time had to do with it, but nevertheless he had challenges.
0: We don't know exactly what happened to Bolton, but he ended up spending his life in the Louisiana State Asylum. He died there in 1931. Around the time that Bolden's health began to decline, a musician named Jelly Roll Morton was just starting out. Like Bolden, Morton was from New Orleans. He'd gotten his start at the age of 14, playing piano in brothels in the city's Storyville neighborhood. When his family learned of this, they disowned him. But Morton kept playing, and he became a star in the world of jazz. In fact, he later claimed to have invented it.
1: He claimed to have used the term jazz, I think, in 1902, but Jelly Roll's memory was not always perfectly reliable at that time.
0: Whitehead says this was part of who Morton was,
1: a showman. People often talk about Jelly Roll Morton as a great braggart, but the virtuoso piano players relied a lot on pushing the competition back psychologically. In
0: 1911, Morton reaches New York City, the capital of America's young recording industry. He's trying to make a name for himself with his flashy style. If you were one of the big piano players at the time,
1: you would dress very well, maybe change your clothes several times a night in the course of a performance to show how many suits you own. This would be a sign of success that you had all this money to waste on excess clothing. And you'd be very careful to take off your jacket before you sat down at the piano and fold it in such a way that you could see the elegant lining as it was lying on top of the piano as you played. It was all part of the effect of being the great man behind the keyboard.
0: So Morton has flash and he has skill. He's a great pianist and composer, and he spends time in New York City, where the burgeoning recording industry is located. So conditions seem favorable for Morton to record the first jazz record. But at this time, there's beginning to be a real backlash against jazz.
2: Jazz was seen as bad for a lot of reasons among those that it was associated with Black
0: people. The pushback will get even more intense a little later when jazz starts to get really popular in the 1920s.
2: It's hard to imagine now, if you were around to remember the backlash to rap music, jazz backlash was five times that. There were rules around not playing jazz in the workplace because it was thought to hurt productivity. And there were some places where there were even ordinances on Don't play jazz too close to maternity wards, because it could poison, you know, morally, poison the babies.
0: In the context of the 1910s, record companies were not lining up to record a great African-American musician like Jelly Roll Morton. They were focused on making white records for white audiences.
1: I think record companies are generally interested in selling anything that will sell but they perceived a completely different market for black music and white music.
0: In the 1910s, some of the biggest recorded hits were by white artists like Enrico Caruso and John Phillips Sousa. Jelly Roll Morton doesn't get the chance to be recorded until decades after his career began. But another group of black artists gets that chance a little earlier. In 1914, an all-Black jazz group begins touring the country on the vaudeville circuit. Over the next four years, about a million people in North America will see them play. They're called the Original Creole Orchestra. They're led by another jazz cornetist out of New Orleans named Freddie Kapar. Kapar and his orchestra are getting a lot of exposure. They're one of very few all-Black ensembles in vaudeville. And their act isn't presented as a serious musical act.
1: It was presented more as a novelty than like art music or like dance music. They would dress on stage like farmers. They would have a live chicken on stage. They were accompanied by a a dancer and a singer. And they do a little bit of singing also.
0: Parts of the act echo minstrel shows, which were a really common and popular form of entertainment at the time. Mostly white musicians and actors would dress up in blackface and present a stereotyped version of African-American life to largely white audiences. And the original Creole Orchestra sometimes wore blackface themselves. That was what it took for them to be a successful African-American act on the vaudeville circuit. They had to accept these indignities and humiliations. But the jazz was there.
1: The Canadian reviewer who wrote in 1916, The cornet, clarinet, violin, guitar, and double bass are played by individuals with seemingly absolute indifference to what the other man was doing, but they always manage to arrive at appointed places in full accord. That sounds kind of like real jazz to me.
0: One night in early 1916, Kapar and the original Creole Orchestra perform at New York City's famous Winter Garden Theater. And during intermission, backstage, They're approached by the Victor Talking Machine Company, who says, do you want to make a record? The first jazz record in history. So the Victor Talking Machine Company approaches Freddie Kapar backstage in 1916. This is the same company that will end up making the first jazz record a year later with the original Dixieland jazz band. And Freddie Kapar, when he hears their offer, he has some worries.
2: So one is he was concerned about someone stealing his style.
0: Remember, there had never been a jazz record before. And a big part of jazz is improvisation. Every single performance is different. But if you did something really good on the recording, another jazz musician could steal your stuff.
1: Such theft is actually pretty common in early jazz. Lots of tunes that are kind of based on other tunes. Obviously, lots of musicians who base their styles on earlier musicians. Freddie Kapar was one of those who would keep a handkerchief over his hand
0: a handkerchief over his hand to disguise his fingering from musicians in the audience who might be watching. Kapar is also concerned about the money. At this time,
2: You made most of your money, ironically, like musicians today, off of touring.
0: Kapar worried that if people owned a recording of the original Creole Orchestra that they could just play any time, they wouldn't come out to see the shows. Recording is so new, people just aren't sure there's any money in it.
2: You're not clear what the upside is, you have a concern about the downside.
0: And the payment offer seems low. Victor Talking Machine says they'll pay Kapar $25 for the recording session. They'll pay each of his bandmates $15 each. And it's a one-time payment, no royalties. Kapar reportedly told the Victor representatives that he spent more than that every day on whiskey. So Kapar says no. The original Creole Orchestra doesn't do the recording, and in fact, they're never recorded. What you just heard was Freddie Kapar, but when he's playing with Erskine Tate's Vendome Orchestra in 1923. About a year after this, another band out of New Orleans is getting big in New York. The original Dixieland Jazz Band.
2: They were a legitimate jazz group.
0: They played in a style called Dixieland Jazz. It's characterized by improvisation, like all jazz. But instead of each musician taking a solo, they improvise all at the same time. These guys were good musicians. But of course...
2: Being white helped in terms of exposure. They toured all over the U.S. and and in Europe. And certainly for parts of Europe, their first exposure to jazz was the original Dixieland Jazz Band.
1: And in January of 1917, they went to New York and took an engagement at a cafe off Columbus Circle. Never been sure how to pronounce it. Reese Webers, Webbers, Rice and Webbers.
0: At Rice and Webbers, you could see the original Dixieland Jazz Band and get a beefsteak dinner for $1.50. The main attraction was not the steak, but the band.
1: They were kind of a near-instant sensation in New York once people figured out how to dance to it.
0: An ad in the New York Sun described them as an overnight furor. On the nights they played at this restaurant, people would keep dancing until 8 a.m. They were getting paid $750 a night, which would be over $15,000 today. And emblazoned in lights on the front of the venue was this sign. The original Dixieland jazz band. Creators of jazz. With the success of this restaurant gig... The original Dixieland jazz band catches the attention of the recording industry, specifically of the Victor Talking Machine Company, the same people who offered to record Freddie Kapar. They offer almost four times as much money to the all-white original Dixieland jazz band, plus royalties.
1: They just thought that a white band was worth more or should be offered more money than an African-American band was. So sometimes people say it's kind of an accident that a white band was recorded first, but I think if you look at this, it's maybe a little bit less
0: than an accident. On February 26th, 1917, the band lines up in front of that huge tin horn, loudest instruments at the back. The sound engineers tell the musicians not to tap their feet because it might ruin the recording. And they play.
2: Obviously, the technology wasn't as far along, then, so we're not fully capturing what it would have been like to actually hear the music. It obviously, would have been much more alive and, and dynamic to actually hear it.
0: But nevertheless, the record is revolutionary. The band recorded two tracks. On the A-side, you have the Dixieland Jazz Band One Step, and on the B-side, Livery Stable Blues. A Victor ad describes the record this way. Quote, The jazz band is the very latest thing in the development of music. It has sufficient power and penetration to inject life into a mummy and will keep
1: ordinary human dancers on their feet till breakfast time.
0: And when the record comes out just a few weeks later, it really does become a sensation.
1: They sold a lot of records. I think because people recognized that this was something new, that it was a, a new kind of ensemble sound, that it seemed kind of chaotic, at first listening and you listen to it more and you can hear that there's kind of a logic to the way the cornet is playing the melody and the clarinet is kind of skating over the top, kind of outlining the chords, and the trombone at the bottom is kind of setting the next chord up.
0: You can hear all those influences that came together in New Orleans, including the undeniable, overwhelming influence of African-American music, a ragtime-style piano, the horns playing with a tone reminiscent of the blues, The original Dixieland jazz band did acknowledge, in a disturbing way, that their music was indebted to Black artists. One ad for the record featured a cartoon of the band members in blackface. Damon Phillips was so struck by it that he put it on the cover of his book.
2: As a Black person, it is fascinating and disturbing at the same time. As an academic. It's interesting because what is going on is they're trying to communicate what jazz is. It is folks in blackface, a cartoon of blackface pictured. So what's interesting is it's acknowledging the roots
0: of the music. It is in a strange and messed up way. It's also important to note the leader of the original Dixieland jazz band, Nick LaRocca, later goes on to claim ludicrously that white people invented jazz. And that African American people, quote, did not play any kind of music equal to white men at any time. So this white group ends up profiting off of an art form pioneered by black artists. And that's a pattern you see over and over in music history.
1: Certainly, there are no shortage of examples of white musicians covering black music and making a lot more uh, money doing so. Elvis Presley would be a good example of that. <laughs>
0: original Dixieland jazz band recording does bring jazz to many, many more people. And that's partly because the musicians are white.
2: My prediction would be that in 1917, if it had been a Black group that had done the recording, it would have been dead. We might have been talking about it as this mysterious recording, just like we're talking about a Buddy Bolden recording.
0: But because the recording is produced and is marketed and so many people hear it, it does mark a real important moment in the history of jazz.
2: This was one of the forces that did help popularize the music to get people listening to jazz. And again, no, they were not pioneers. But in the long run, we do know more about Louis Armstrong than we do about the original Big Jazz Band.
0: Armstrong was from New Orleans. His sound is descended from the sound of those early jazz musicians. He saw Betty Bolden play when he was five years old. And Armstrong becomes a huge sensation in the 1920s, one of the most famous musicians in history.
2: The force of the pioneers ultimately won out. And I mean, his his level of musicianship was incredible, but these were musical ideas that were over 20 years old.
0: Armstrong might have sounded so new, partly because no one had ever heard a recording of Buddy Bolden.
2: It's difficult to keep in mind a musical pioneer for which no one can hear what they did.
0: A recording preserves a sound. That's the whole point. But a recording can also have the effect of erasing or eclipsing what isn't recorded.
2: When we're saying history, often we're talking about recorded history. For me, this 1917 date is a reminder of the relationship between those two. Recorded history and the history that we didn't care to record or didn't know how to record. But just the missing stuff.
0: The missing stuff. There's more of that than all the recorded stuff combined. But to hear it, you just had to be there. Thanks for listening to History This Week. For more moments throughout history that are also worth watching, check your local TV listings to find out what's on the History Channel today. This episode was produced by Ben Dickstein. History This Week is also produced by McKamey Lynn, Julie Magruder, and me, Sally Helm. Our editor and sound designer is Dan Rosato, and our researcher is Emma Fredericks. Our executive producers are Jesse Katz and Ted Butler. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review History This Week, wherever you get your podcasts. And we will see you next week.
1: Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter.